I'm Will Hansen, and welcome to the Experts in the Room podcast, brought to you by Extreme Push. In this series, we chat to some of the leading minds working in the customer experience, retention, and data space in some of the most competitive and fastest growing industries in the world. In this episode, Cross-Functional Chats, I spoke with Kerry Finley-Bonner. Kerry is one of the strongest commercial leaders in the sports and fashion industries going, and formerly one of Nike's sales directors. We go deep on the challenges brands face when it comes to everything from market position, finding the right people, and how being customer-centric is the best and only way to grow. We cover some serious ground here. Really enjoyed this chat, so there is something for everyone. I hope you enjoy it too. Welcome back to the Experts in the Room podcast. I'm massively excited today to welcome uh, Kerry Finley-Bonner to the podcast, sales director extraordinaire at some of the best fashion and sports brands uh, in the world. I don't know if that intro was as tick the box, but sales director at formerly with um, Tommy Hilfiger and Calvin Klein, and then obviously the big one, Nike. Um, welcome to the podcast, Kerry. Thank you, Will. That, wow, that's some introduction. <laughs> <laughs> I, I try and do the buttering up at the start of the show. That's 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 usually my tactic. I love it. Uh, yeah. Um, look, it's really great to have you on board. We're going to cover a few things today, but I, I'd love to just um, hear about kind of your background within the fashion and sports industry uh, and how that sits from kind of a marketing and a commercial perspective, because you've worn many hats uh, in your time at some of the biggest brands that, that we all wear and love um, around the world at the moment. Yeah, thank you. Um I am very much, I would describe myself as a cross-functional leader. Um, I have always been in sales, um, bar a short stint in marketing. Um, I started off my career at uh, Mars or Master Foods, as it was known at the time. I did a couple of years in grocery trade in Dublin and moved swiftly into the marketing function. Um, And I quickly learned that marketing wasn't necessarily my forte because I I really wanted something tangible. I was very kind of goal orientated. Um, So I left Master Foods and I landed into Nike. Um, It's very important to note that I was not a fitness expert or uh, was I a fitness enthusiast. I am very, literally, there's a saying in Ireland, I couldn't run the length of myself. And that was very true. Um, However, I jumped in and uh, started my career with Nike in, in 2003 and spent 18 fabulous years there, um, learning lots about uh, sporting goods, the sports industry, a hell of a lot about consumers and a lot about cross-functional leadership. Um, And in March, 2021, I left Nike, Took some time out, uh, decided to do upskill myself in the, in the area of digital. So we'll talk a little bit about Omnichannel later. Hugely passionate about that um, and just uh, wanted to take some time to figure out what I wanted to do next. And that's where I uh, landed into PVH and I started there February 2022. So basically it was uh, combining my passion and huge love for fashion with obviously the more strategic commercial um, sales leadership piece. Um, So it was, uh, yeah, trying to marry my passion with also some work so I really have very much enjoyed that that part of my uh, career too and and I know um with Nike that um before we talked on the show that there's obviously the 
the correct and, and incorrect pronunciation of the brand, which obviously That's is correct. one of the best bits. So hopefully I got that right. You absolutely did. Thank you very much. It's, it's one of those things, right? Because everybody has different pronunciations and it definitely, it even can can vary. I mean, I live in the UK and, and the Southern approach versus the, the Northern yeah. uh, is very different. I always find that funny because it's uh, that, that probably coming back from my ancient history days of studying maybe Greek mythology or so. Um, uh, sorry, Roman uh-huh. mythology for not, <laughs> I should say. So um, anyway, um, I, I, I'm going to pull. I'm going to pull on a thread here. So obviously, we we love talking to people, um, and I enjoyed that you said that you you didn't last in marketing and you ended up as a as a sales function, uh-huh. and that's where my day job sits. So mm-hmm. I I. Uh, I don't know whether I say I feel for you or I understand <laughs> why you ended up there, but it could be both. So all the marketers listening, don't take that in a bad no. way. Um, take it as it is. So, but what what I think is really really interesting about about your career, and, we, and we'll talk about it with some some of the approaches with the brands that you've had, is is the way that consumer uh, and you mentioned it already in the start there, consumer being at the forefront of what you're doing, and then a shift into digital and. And then looking at kind of cross functionality within teams, just just maybe um, fill me in when you're when you're looking at big brands like Nike or or, or Tommy Hilfiger or or any of these, and the PBH group have plenty of brands. When when you're talking about from a commercial function being consumer focused, what are you actually talking about um, from that perspective? Um, I basically mean putting the consumer at the heart of everything that you do whether that's from a product perspective or a brand and marketing investment perspective. Um, You know, if we take an example of any product, if Nike want to uh, release a new running shoe, um, if they just built a shoe, uh, it's a bit like taking taking mud, right, and chucking it at the wall. Unless you actually actually know who you're designing the shoe for, what problem are you trying to solve with that specific product? Who are you trying to target? If they've already got running shoes, why would they want to buy this one? Um, And that's what I mean by literally putting the consumer at the heart of everything that you do when you design product, whether you're designing a dress or if you're designing a jacket for a child, there has to be a functionality element. and You need to know who that is specifically for. Equally, when you look at from a brand perspective, again, you don't want to chuck mud at the wall because marketing is a very costly and um, costly business. You need to know exactly who you're targeting. And I think with the new age of digital, it becomes even more relevant and more important because you've got more access to data, more access to consumer insights. But again, you need to know exactly who you're hoping to speak to. So, for example, if you're designing um, a a dress for a woman, again, uh, you know, are you targeting the 35 to 45 age group, in which case it's going to have to be a certain length, a certain style? Or are you going something that's kind of a bit more shorter, revealing? Maybe it's for a a younger age group. It's got high brand read. So, you know, you really need to put the consumer at the very heart of everything that you do. Otherwise, you're just building a load of stuff and you're just putting it out there, hoping that it will sell. And and I think that applies as you said, across your marketing function as well, mm-hmm. like I, I laugh at the um the big battle at the moment between Nike and Adidas on the um the marathon running shoes uh-huh. that are breaking all the records. <laughs> um, obviously not targeted to someone like me, <laughs> like you said, they couldn't they couldn't run a lap. Um, but but I, I find it interesting when you talk about how you build for the consumer. Um, from your stretch of working in a business for that long, because I think that that's that that in itself is unique potentially 
um, in in maybe this day and age in a, in really digital and fast moving brands. Mm-hmm. Um, Seventeen years with the company. Mm-hmm. Um, how 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 did you see the the application of data, both from the consumer side and marketing, changing over time? Because I imagine that when you started, it was way different to yeah. how it was when you left in 2021. Absolutely. Well, you know, when I when I joined in 2003, essentially, we were almost like a, a sell-in-led company. And a lot of brands are still very like that. So again, you're selling in and you're, you're, you're capitalizing, you're building on numbers. So it's compounded growth. How are we going to grow every year? And you're slapping on five, six, seven percent. By the time I left, we were uh, a sellout based organization. And what I mean by that was the the order books that Nike were producing were based on what they actually sold. So they would start with the retail sales value and build it back up. Um, That doesn't happen a lot um, within organizations, especially now, because you know, they're obviously looking to grow and, and maybe they're not in that specific space of building things from bottom up. Um, and so therefore you come at it from a very different lens. So you're very much sell-in driven as opposed to sell-out. Data became hugely important. I remember the time when it became a big part of what we did as salespeople. And this was before we had data analysts or anything. Um, and it was literally, you know, it was a time when it was around 2009, 2010, when, you know, business was, it was really good, but of course, Nike, you know, we still need to continue to grow. Um, And essentially it was just a kind of a stock versus sales and a, a forecasting element, which forecasting was always part of everything that we did, but this was more data led. Um, so that's the point for me when Nike really turned. Um, and I think that they are very much at the advanced stages of what that looks like. And that will protect them in so many ways because they are sell through based as opposed to hitting a, hitting in a sell out or set, sorry, a sell in number, a gross sales number. Let's just say it is about that, but it's um, a little bit more data led. Yeah, it's interesting because I think like a lot of people that would listen to us would be, you know, uh, from smaller or medium sized brands that maybe don't have the brand power of a Nike. So they're going, okay, well, it's good to be sell through when you're when you're when you're Nike and everyone wants your brand. Um, What what type of advice would you give to people that are potentially looking at this environment from a sales and a commercial perspective on on how they can be data led in in the way that they think about? Um, both their brand position, but then what they're actually kind of selling. I think it probably comes back to the consumer, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, knowing exactly who your consumer is, knowing the target segment, it's the basics, right? Knowing what the size of your consumer pool is. Um, And a lot of the data now can be bought in bundles um, and it is more accessible. I mean, there's a lot of stuff on statista.com, et cetera, that you can access. So that's your kind of starting point. And well, to be honest with you, I would almost argue that this should be more imperative for smaller brands because they don't want to have overstock positions. They don't want to be producing too much because if you produce too much, then it ends up being marked down and, and your brand devalues instantly. So actually, you're better off to try and build it consistently and build it smaller based on what your consumer demand is. Um, it just means that you can protect your brand and brand health and also the premium nature. One of the things about, you know, I remember at Nike, and this is about any kind of collab, 
if you have a brand new, uh, again, I'll go back to a, a brand new silhouette in a, in a shoe and it sells out, the consumer really wants it. That's the cool shoe. I need that in my life. And so you actually create more brand heat by having those limited editions. And not everybody wants to do it that way because they want to go mass market. But I remember times at Nike when it we did go mass market and it was great and we milked it. But then the shoe would have fallen off a cliff. And so suddenly you're trying to anniversary these big numbers. What Nike do expertly and they do it so well is that they have a have a vault and they retire shoes over time. So if you remember the Air Classic BW, it was like, you know, 10 a penny. There was plenty of them out there. And slowly but surely, Nike put that away. They put it into the vault and they would take it back out and rejuvenate it. Same with the 95, with the 97. Cortez was another one. The Blazers, another one. They're very good about putting, you know, putting those shoes away before they fall off a cliff, before they're trying to anniversary the big numbers. Um, I think the one that, they have maybe struggled to put away so far is the Air Force One because the, the demand for that shoe, it's absolutely incredible. Yeah, I, 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 it's, it's interesting. And I think like you can apply this across so many different industries, right? I think that the, the, as you talked about earlier, it's the fundamentals um, around what you're doing with your marketing and, and whether it's your product or whatever you're selling, um, whether it's a, a SaaS product like us or whether it's a, uh, intangible product with like some of the brands that we work with. I, I want to tap into um, something that you talked about earlier because I think this is this is really interesting about being um, about essentially um, looking at cross functionality within businesses. So you said earlier you you weren't a marketer and you became a salesperson, but um, like how have you seen kind of roles evolve? Um, across time as a commercial leader within a business that people are actually wearing many hats now? And how do you get brands to kind of, sorry, how do you get people within your brand um, and in your unit that are working towards a sales goal? How do you kind of get them to work together um, with different parts of the business, whether it be product, whether it be the brand marketing teams or it's the outgoing marketing teams or the inbound customer service teams? Like what are some of the standards that you think um, uh, apply to best practice for that? I think the, the number one piece here was when uh, at Nike, we all learned how to be cross-functional leaders. But to be really honest with you, I never really identified with that uh, title or description until I'd actually left the business. So um, when you're in the Nike environment, when you're within the business, it's so dynamic and so fast-paced. I can't labor enough on that, but you don't actually realize because you're just on this hamster wheel. You're constantly going um, and there's always something happening. The brand itself and the business is so agile. It's so dynamic. It's so forward thinking. They are constantly trialing and testing to try and move forward. And if something works, they'll move with it. They adopt a strategy. If they realize the strategy is not working, they are quickly pivot and it's never, oh, that didn't work. Let's start again. They literally just pivot round. And I think that transcends then into the type of people that they hire into the organization. People who are comfortable with ambiguity, people who are comfortable to, you know, constantly change. Like change was always constant with us literally all the time. And you have to be, um, you just have to be able to do that. Uh, I think it's really important when you build teams 
that they have very much got a cross-functional view. So there's something called a, an integrated account team, which was born in Nike. And that was basically where you had an account team that would manage a Fraser's group or an ASOS. And you would have the sales people. So the sales team, you would have the, the account uh, marketing people, you would have the operations people. So it's a whole cross-functional group of people. And they basically sit on a weekly basis together. So you're learning from your colleagues about what's important in their world. And you're, you're building strategic plans together. So it's not just the leader. So for example, if I'm leading an ASOS account, it's not me building the strategy on my own. I think that those days were 20 years ago. You're building it with your team because if you do that, they're more likely to buy into it and, and you know, develop the actions and fulfill it. Equally, it gives them the chance to develop as people, right? So they get a flavor of actually, okay, I'm in sales. I understand and respect what's happening in marketing. I may not be an excellent marketeer, but I understand what their role is in this and equally what I need to give them to fulfill. And, and at the same time, you know, operations, how they play a very valuable part. I might sell in the goods, but they actually get them to the door and get them to the store. So that's really important too. And I think when in this new age, we should all be looking at that cross-functional leadership. It's no longer a silo approach um, for any brand, right? You've got to have people who are savvy. Yes, you can have experts, don't get me wrong, in sales and sales negotiation, but they have to understand and respect what other functions bring to the table. And I think that's a huge part of any team so that you're building everybody. They all know what each other's roles are, but they have a respect and an understanding for, for how they fulfill those roles and how they can all partner together. Um, and Nike were huge on that, really, really big. And that's a real real growth mindset type of Absolutely. Um, uh, mm-hmm. people that you're looking for that are, that are able to take that coaching and able to take that understanding of, of looking at it not in silos, but as a, as a whole. And not everybody is happy to do that, Will. You know, I've, I've, and I've managed a lot of people. I've managed people who are like, don't micromanage me. Don't, you know, don't put me in shackles. But then you will have other people that they want to be micromanaged. They need specific direction. And I think as a leader, you have to, you have to identify who needs what within your team. I am one of those leaders who I like to give my team all the opportunities, right? They're the future leaders. I talk about it, but, you know, handing on the baton. You can only hand on the baton if you give people a chance to go out and learn to do these things. And, and you know, a lot of, lot of my mentors and leaders at Nike, they took chances on me and they give me huge opportunities. They put me on stage and, you know, I could have fallen over and it could have been a complete disaster. But it wasn't. And I, you know, anytime you make a mistake, you're constantly learning. And I think leadership for me is all about that. It's about empowering your team, giving them the freedom and allowing them to make mistakes because for, they will forever be grateful to you and will be able to move forward and make big decisions and, and you know, achieve great results based on that. Uh, I'm on a bit of a tangent here, but it, but it's topical because I've spoken to a couple of uh, different people on on this podcast, um, particularly in the e-commerce function, so very digitally focused around a, a, a difficulty in finding the right people at the moment. Are you are you seeing that broadly from a more uh, from a commercial function at these bigger brands, or I imagine someone like Nike or even PVH don't have too much problem finding talent, but is that, is that something that's coming through to you? Because to be a digital marketer or even a, 
a digital salesperson now, you're not actually one person. You have a skill set that can do all sorts of things. You could be doing, um, to, to use a marketer's language, you could be doing social media, you could be doing content writing, you could be doing SEO, you could be doing all these different functions that are not just core to one function, same as a salesperson. Um, like, do you find that that there is a dearth of talent or is it all right? Um, it's just an interesting one because it's come up before for me. Yeah, I would agree in terms of it is quite challenging to um, recruit new talent. I have had a few roles in, at PBH in the last couple of years, and it's taken me quite some time to recruit for them. But there's two things within that. Firstly, I think coming out of covid um, a lot of people got into positions and they, they're happy and they're secure and they don't want to move. There's another side, though, Will. If I look at, you know, somebody in their, say, mid to late 20s and I compare them to when I was that age, it's a very different expectation. So, you know, whereas I maybe was looking for a job for life. I was with Nike for 17 years. You've got younger people. I only want to come in for two years and I want to move through and I want to go to somewhere else and I want to keep moving. And so you're, you're almost like you're battling with that as well because you have to constantly be meeting their expectations or else they will go. And there's this age old, you know, um, I've heard it many a time. It's like, you know, if you don't give me X amount of money, I'm going to leave. And they do and they walk. Whereas when I was maybe, and I'm not saying I'm really old, but when I was in that, when I was in that space, I was like, please keep me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm really yeah. happy. I really need the job. So I think attitudes have very much changed. And the other thing I would say to you as well is some brands, not all, but some brands will choose to have people for a shorter time. Yeah. So actually, you know, if I look at Nike now, a lot of the sort of, older experience, the longer tenure, there's very few people left with longer tenure. It's all they want newness, they want new people coming through and they want the, the latest and greatest, if that makes sense. So I think you you have to try and f- strike a balance between the two. But um, you know what? It's a very competitive market out there at the moment. Um, and despite everything that's happening in terms of macroeconomics, there's a lot of big opportunities for people if you're in the right place at the right time. I, I've turned this marketing podcast into a recruitment podcast as one of my next steps. That's a new that's a new win yeah, for me. Um, absolutely. I might, I might shift. I might shift back into um, into fashion and sports as, as a whole as an industry. Right. Um, lots of lots of debate at the moment around the impacts of COVID on both. I think acceleration and maybe deceleration of certain trends. Um, how how do you think bigger brands or or brands in general have kind of dealt with the pandemic and then after the pandemic, and a lot of them had to shift into digital and then looking at how they take an approach of either being global brands or then getting very specific and being localized brands. Like where do you think opportunities lie for brands in that space? Wow. There's three, three big, big, big questions in there. And firstly, in terms of brands, COVID hit us all like a steam train for the likes of the sports brands for Nike, Adidas. You know, it was a gravy train because everybody was at home and it was like, I just want more hoodies. I want tracksuit bottoms, leggings, etc. So it was it was amazing. We had a great time. Sales were flying. But obviously nobody wants to take a hit. So suddenly you become out of COVID and the consumer's like, I've got a wardrobe full of jersey. I don't I don't need any more hoodies. So suddenly, and, and by the way, 
you know, if you think about the buyers, they're buying six months in advance. So they might have assumed that this is going to continue. So suddenly you've got a lot of overstocks. So then suddenly, you know, again, they have to pivot. How do you pivot out of that? Okay, it means that you're going to have to reset slightly to see what actually is that consumer demand. So that's probably the first piece. Um, secondly, during COVID, everything obviously went digital, right? Um, most uh, some brands were well set up for it and, and it just it switched, right? You literally went from okay, closing doors to, to going online. However, for some um for some stores and smaller independents, that was really difficult because you had stock that was locked up in the store and they may not have had a website. I think one of the cleverest things I saw was when you know retailers took to Facebook to sell. And some of them have continued, right? I'm not going to invest in a website because actually my small business doesn't maybe necessarily warrant it because my, my customer likes coming into my store, but actually I, I need to flog this stuff. So, you know, some of the accounts did actually really well and have continued to have a nice little business online, but then obviously kind of almost like a traffic driving piece, they use that to leverage people coming into store. If you look at the bigger brands, obviously they went to like, you know, pretty much 100% digital. And then you've got the likes of the pure players. So the, you know, ASOS, Next, Very, they all did phenomenally well. But then you come out of COVID and the consumer goes, ah, I need to go back into store. I'm going to go back in. I'm going to see, touch and feel product. So suddenly those strategies, which were, oh, you know, we're all going digital. It's like digital first, et cetera. Suddenly they had to revert back to, no, it's now omni-channel. And on top of that, you had a lot of uh, brands who went, actually, I want to be a DTC brand. That's exactly where all my revenue is going to come from. I'm going to switch. I'm, I'm no longer a wholesale focused. I'm going to switch it all into my own DTC brand. But actually, the reality is that the consumer is going, you know what? I want to shop multi-brand. I don't want to just go into your one store. So suddenly you have brands having to pivot out of that as well and going, OK, actually, I need to be big with my wholesale partners. And even if you have a look at some of the bigger brands where they would have closed down accounts previously, and I'm talking in the US, they're actually going back to reopen those accounts now because they're really important partners and they're missing out on specific consumer groups. Again, knowing who your consumer is, they're missing out on them because they're not in those spaces. And um, so I suppose a couple of things, it's being able to firstly identify where your consumer is and realizing what the problem is, and then being able to shift gears quickly and, and really kind of appeal to them. And um, to answer the third part of your question, the global versus local piece. Again, this is something that um, I learned in my journey at the Swoosh. So um, at one point in time, we had a global product team that sat in the US and we had a European product team who obviously sat in, in, uh, in Hilversum in the Netherlands. And both of them were, were product creation teams. There, you know, we'd take a certain percentage of our global line and we would sell it. But it was a lot of it that wasn't really relevant but actually what Nike did successfully in 2012 was that they essentially they took all the product creation and put it in the US because they are feeling, and this is not just product, it's brand. Wherever you shop in the world, you should have the same experience of the brand regardless of where you go. So what you see from Nike from a product perspective in Shanghai should be the same as in Dublin. But because of, of various and differences in materials, et cetera, there was a big disjoint. Now what they've got is they've got one global line and that's what they sell, which is great. Now, obviously, you're going to have 
temperature differences. And so they, they, they create specific products for those warmer climates like South Africa, Dubai, et cetera. So that's absolutely fine. But again, it's one, it's one view. What they do expertly well is that they connect with the consumer on a local basis through their brand and marketing. So they will have their big brand campaigns, but then in each key, what they call key global cities, like, for example, London, Milan, Paris, and, you know, New York, they will have those key city influences. And so they will use their brand investment to localize it. So, for example, you might have um, in the US, it might be Nike Run Club and they do runs from all of their Nike stores in the center of NYC. Right. Whereas actually in London, that you know, for example, that doesn't work. Okay, but we need to host bigger events. So actually, we're going to do a women's only run, and we're going to do it in May, and we're going to create this big theatre around it. So it's tapping into what that local consumer responds best to, and that's how they um, make it hyper local, is what they talk about. Um, but it's again, it's working very closely on the ground, and um, and having more marketing people in those key cities to do that job. So the sales piece would be very much centralized. So that can be dealt with out of Hilversum in the Netherlands. But the brand piece, the marketing piece, very important to people on the ground. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I, th- I think it will, it's obviously a successful model for a brand, a brand of that size that's doing so well. And you can see, you can see, you can see where there's disconnect. And I think the, the strongest point there is is around making sure that it matches the consumer need. And you can see the brands that are struggling, particularly in the UK at the moment, that haven't dealt with the shift back to omni-channel, as, as you talked about. It. And you can see the ones that have struggled because of, because of that disconnect with what their consumer actually wants. It's not about their potentially the quality of their gear or their the quality of their kind of position, but it's actually about their disconnect with what the consumers are really actually after. And then there's some brands who I personally think have done so well coming out of COVID. One of them that stands out for me is Next, right? If you're in the UK, I can't remember the specific stat that they came in and told us, but every single person in the UK, you're within 16 miles, I think, of your nearest Next store. So what they've actually done is that they use them as distribution hubs. So, for example, last week I needed to order something from Reese. Right, Christmas is coming. Got to order a few frocks. I ordered them on a Thursday. I could pick them up the next day in my local next door, which is three point five miles away. So I went in, didn't have to talk to anybody. I scanned at a, at a small booth, and I, and basically a girl came out within five minutes, handed me my frocks, and off I went. Went back in this morning, again, didn't have to deal with anybody, went to the booth, scanned and basically put in my package and it was all done. So convenient and so easy. So next for me, um, they're definitely up there as being one of the best from a consumer experience. But they've learned and they've really come out of COVID into a new era of satisfying that consumer demand. Now, there's a whole other piece with Next on how they operate as a marketplace, et cetera, et cetera, for brands. But certainly from a consumer experience perspective, it's brilliant. Like I literally now would be like, oh, my goodness, how can I? Because otherwise you're paying, you know, three, four or five quid maybe for delivery and the same to send it back. So, you know, it's expensive, whereas for free, that's what consumers want. And especially in tough times like now, convenience at the least amount of cost. 
Yeah, and I, I, I yeah, I, I was going to ask you about like experiences from a brand perspective that you really like. So that's I think that's an awesome example. Do do you um do do you think that that um, omni-channel when you and, and when you talk about omni-channel, you're obviously talking about utilizing all the channels that you potentially have. And if if you're an only online retailer, then obviously you can't utilize what you've just talked about there and using your store. You you've got to you've got to figure out different ways to connect with your audience. Yeah. There is also other ways, though. Um, you've got like partner programs, for example. So you could partner up with, you know, if you're a pure player, you could partner up with a brand, whether that's a Nike or an Adidas. Um, and you have then you're using that as the fulfillment model. So you're able to broaden your range and have access to their inventory and be able to service your consumer. And equally vice versa, you can fulfill their orders now, obviously, that comes with a bit of a challenge because if there's high inventory on their side, the likelihood is that they may go into sale earlier and suddenly you've signed up to this as well, right? Because you can't, you can't sell at a, a different price. So that brings a whole new element that I think brands need to consider as they go into these partner programs. So it's great from a, a revenue, but then obviously when, when things like general sale or there's problems, then, you know, it's hitting your business as well. Um, but from a, if I think also from a pure player perspective, there's so many learnings that they can take from the guys who have an omni-channel um, space, whether it's a Next or it's, um, you know, a, a Fraser's group or if it's a, a JD Sports. There's so many learnings that you can take from them um, to be like, actually, and one of the most recent ones, if it comes to mind, is all around, you know, the JD loyalty program that launched um, in the last week. That's something that could be adopted by a pure player. Simply just, you know what I mean, very simple. It doesn't have to be an in-store piece. It could be an online piece as well. I think when we think about brands that are doing a really good job and you always think about experience, but it, it, it always comes back to customer experience and the community that people build with brands in 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 the fact that that we are creatures of habit and we do buy from certain brands because we like the experience or the community that it brings to us. Um, so I, I think that that's a really really interesting point but then also your whole idea of that from a commercial perspective you can test and learn but be able to pivot very quickly it's the brands that can't pivot that seem to be the ones that get 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 left behind i, I would i would use as the terms or the ones that can't adapt in this environment another one who i've I could have had the opportunity to really explore recently is gymshark so obviously there, you know, I walked the Regent Street last week and I went in and what staggered me was the number of younger people shopping more performance gear um, and actually their ability to connect with their consumer. If you see the hundreds of people who run and do take part in their weekly runs from their Gymshark store in Regent Street, that gives people a sense of community. It's, it's again, it's going... Nike used to do that from Nike Town. I'm not sure if they do it anymore, but it allows people to share their love of the brand and also gives them somebody to run with. Maybe their mates don't run, but they actually, you know, this opens up a whole new community for them. So it's a great way to, you know, to bring the brand to life through people's own experience. And it's not just flogging gear, right? It's not trying to just sell them more product. Gymshark, I think, are a really interesting case study in in how a brand can potentially scale off the back of new, what I wouldn't call it new, but like scale, they scaled off the back of social and building a community off the back of that. But then 
as they became a multi-million dollar business, did need to pivot and t- and and have taken some risks. I think with taking on you know store footprints that they never had with Regent Street, like they'd be paying a fortune for that. Um, but taking on models and learning from some of the other bigger players in the space as to what can or maybe can't work, um, and taking some bets on that. So it's funny how a business that can start off as a a challenger or a non-traditional business that can then take on some of those traditional aspects um, and make them work in their own way potentially. Um, so, yeah, I think they are a really interesting case study. Um, but, yeah, the, it, again, comes down to community for a brand like that, I think, and being customer first in, in what they're trying to achieve. This has been excellent because we've gone down a route that we we would probably um, – uh, see as a bit different looking at it as a commercial perspective from fashion and sports. I'd love to ask you, if you won the lotto tomorrow and you set up Kerry's sportswear and fashion or something like that, like what what type of approach would you go if if you could wave that wand and be the founder of a brand um, and go like this is this is this is the kind of core fundamentals that I would be looking at setting up as a as a as a fashion and sports brand. It's a hard um, question. Yeah. Without giving away, you don't have to give away all your trade secrets, but oh, maybe some of them because no. I'm sure there's some people listening. <laughs> um, I think first and foremost, you have to, again, it starts with the consumer. So you've got to figure out not just what the product is. You've got to figure out who exactly you're starting, you want to target. So, for example, if you're saying it's going to be kerrysports.com, it's like, okay, well, where where could you position yourself amongst all the brands? So if you think of like, even now, you've got On Running, you've got Gymshark, you've got Hoka, you've got so many, Brooks are even coming back. You've got so much more competition and you've got smaller brands, right? If you think of Peachelene in Ireland, yeah. you've got all these or smaller Jim and, brands. Or Jim and Coffee or any of these Jim guys. Jim and yeah. Coffee or any of these guys, they're all fighting for share of wallet. So it's important to really kind of figure out who that is. Um, one of my um one of my big how would I describe it one of my big passions is around inclusivity um and I'm very passionate about the inclusive and being inclusive for the customer and I mean that for men women and children and I think that that's something Nike was very good at so I would first of all decide what it is I want, who I wanted to target, what I was trying to sell them. But I would make that an all inclusive offering. And um, one of the things I learned from Nike very quickly was because I, I basically was on the team that helped them launch uh, Plus Size for Women in the UK in 2014. And that was a really big deal because nobody else was doing it. The difference with Nike is that they invested in plus size mannequins. They put them in the window on Oxford Circus and they basically shouted about it because you know what? We had done a lot of consumer groups. I remember one in particular, we did it in partnership with ASOS and we did it with a plus size community of of lovely, beautiful women. And they were like, if I go into a store, it's one rail down the back. It's almost like a really shoddy, dirty secret. Tell me that you're, you're trying to be inclusive. So actually, you know, being all inclusive for me would be very, very important and knowing exactly the size of the prize. So obviously, again, getting in tune with the consumer group, knowing what your USP is going to be and then actually, okay, what is the the size of the prize? Then I would start to build my product line, obviously around it, but in conjunction with brand, because what I would want to know is, okay, who are we trying to target? Where, Where are they? What do they do? How do they like to be spoken to? 
because we're all being, you know, we're all online all the time and we're just, there's so much stuff coming at us. I think the consumer at some point is going to, you know, start to turn off notifications, move away, step away. We're all, you know, kind of bombarded every single day with so much. So how do you become that credible influence in their life? I don't know what the answer is, Will, but it's certainly one consideration that I would have. We'd be billionaires if we had that answer. <laughs> that, that's for sure. I, I I really like that inclusivity piece. The the Nike piece is 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 just interesting. And I'll, I'll finish with this point. Just a really interesting point about how something like that it's now accepted as best practice with brands that 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 push down that line. And it's but to think that you know previously that that was not what the experience was like. It just seems like madness now looking at it. Um, but then by taking the ability to test that and actually understand what some consumer groups that's worth that's that's worth it within the business I think that's important too um, but then to be able to do it, it's huge I think that's really cool and I think every brand has something to offer if I think about PVH they've got an adaptive range and adaptive you know for for people who you know for anybody who's impacted that needs that ring that's really important and i it's a bit like i want that dress i want to be able to wear it the same way somebody who is able-bodied so it's it's very important but equal just as important will is shouting about it tell people don't just stick it on your website you've got to tell people make a point and i think that's what scares a lot of brands they're like oh i'm not confident in that space um, you know, and I, I don't want to go there and I don't want to put my brand dollars behind it, which, you know, in the age we're living in, we need to all be all inclusive. Yeah, a, a very interesting point to end it. And Kerry, I, the, I think there's if, if people do listen to that last little bit about what what should what you should be looking at to start a brand, we might see a, a plethora of different sports brands coming out after the back of this podcast, I think. Oh, um, who knows? We'll, we'll see. see. You might have to be able to, you'd be able to claim some credit or something for them. <laughs> Um, commission commission for sales probably i hope so um, be nice but yeah I, i've really enjoyed our chat today um we've covered we've covered all sorts of ground there um but really appreciate you take, taking the time and coming and talking to us experts in the room our podcast here with extreme push so we do appreciate it carrie thank you very much will i really enjoyed it excellent